Welcome to the History of English podcast, a podcast about the history of the English language. This is episode 87, The First Spelling Reformers. In this episode, we're going to look at the alphabet during the period of Middle English. We're also going to continue our look at the Ormulum, a 12th century text that marked a revival of English writing. As we saw last time, the text shows some important changes in the language, as English evolved from Old English into Middle English. Those changes included lots of new words, especially Norse words. But it also included several notable changes in English spelling. Some of those changes are documented for the first time in the Ormulum, and other changes appear a short time later. So this time, we'll look at those spelling reforms, and we'll see how many of our modern spelling conventions evolved during this period. But before we begin, let me remind you that the website for the podcast is historyofenglishpodcast.com, and you can sign up to support the podcast at patreon.com. Just go to historyofenglishpodcast.com and link from there. Now this time, we're going to explore the changing alphabet during the time of Middle English. The Anglo-Saxons had adopted the Latin alphabet and made some changes to it to make it work for Old English. But after the Norman Conquest, the French-educated scribes didn't like what they saw in English documents. They looked at those documents and they saw funny-looking letters, and they saw strange spellings for certain common sounds. So those scribes decided to fix English spelling. And of course, I'm putting the word fix in quotes. What they were really doing was imposing traditional French spelling rules on English. We see the first evidence of these changes in the final entries of the Peterborough Chronicle, composed in the mid-1150s. And we see lots more of these changes in the Ormulum, probably composed in the 1180s. These are two of the earliest Middle English texts, and they both show several new spellings. But the Ormulum is notable because it's the first document to clearly distinguish the pronunciation of long vowels and short vowels. Orm made this distinction by doubling the consonant after a short vowel. And this was a completely new innovation, and Orm was very proud of it. He even directed any scribes who copied his text to make sure that they maintained his spellings. He wanted his text to be read out loud to English-speaking congregations and he wanted to make sure that the words were pronounced correctly. So his text is very helpful in showing how words were actually pronounced in the late 1100s, at least in the East Midlands of England. In addition to his spelling innovations related to vowels, Orm is also the first scribe to use some common spelling conventions for certain consonant sounds. Most of these consonant changes were traditional spellings used in Latin and French documents, so they weren't really unique to Orm. But Orm is the first known English writer to use many of these innovations. Now, I had intended to cover all of these changes in this episode, but there were so many changes that I won't have time to cover all of them here. So this time, I'm going to focus on the new spellings related to consonant sounds. And next time, I'll try to tackle the changes associated with the vowels. After these next couple of episodes, we'll have a much better idea why English words are spelled the way they are. So let me begin by noting that I looked at the development of the Old English alphabet back in episodes 34 through 36. So if you're really interested in this topic, I would recommend that you go back and listen to those episodes as well. And if you want an even more comprehensive version of the story, I recommend that you check out the History of the Alphabet audiobook that I did several years ago. 
That audiobook traces the story all the way back to the very first version of the alphabet. But this time, I'm only going to focus on the changes to the alphabet during the period of early Middle English. And as we'll see, most of those changes are still with us today. Now, back in those earlier episodes, I traced some sound changes that took place in early Old English. And I explained how the early Anglo-Saxon scribes adapted the Latin alphabet to those sounds. That required them to use some existing letters in new ways. And it also led them to adopt some new letters that weren't even part of the Latin alphabet. So I thought a good place to start was with those new letters used by the Anglo-Saxon scribes. Those are the letters known as thorn, eth, win, and ash. They weren't used in Latin and French, and the French-educated scribes apparently hated them because they immediately replaced them with letters from the Latin alphabet. A few of those Anglo-Saxon letters lingered on for a few more centuries, but they gradually disappeared by the end of the Middle English period. So let's start with those old Anglo-Saxon letters called thorn and eth. These were the two letters for the th sound. And actually, I should say sounds, because there are actually two different th sounds. There's the voiced sound, found in words like the and this, and the voiceless version, found in words like thank and thing. And we can hear that difference if we try to switch those two sounds. If we try to pronounce this as this, or thank as thank. Anyway, it appears that Old English had both of those th sounds, just like we do today. But Latin didn't have either one. So Latin didn't have a specific letter for that sound. That meant that the Anglo-Saxons had to figure out a way to spell those sounds in Old English. So they came up with two solutions, and they existed side by side in Old English. One option was a runic letter called thorn. That letter resembles a letter P with a loop in the middle of the stem rather than at the top. The other option was called eth. It was probably derived from an Irish version of the letter D. And it looks like a lowercase d with a curved stem, and the stem has a line through it. Most Anglo-Saxon scribes use the two letters interchangeably. In fact, within a given text, a scribe might spell a particular word with a thorn in one place and with an eth in another place, sometimes in the same sentence. So both of those letters were in common use prior to the Norman Conquest. But then the Normans arrived, and the French-educated scribes didn't like those funny-looking letters, so they decided to replace them with something more familiar. Their solution was our modern letter combination, TH. And one of the first uses of that letter combination in English can be found in the Peterborough Chronicle. In fact, I mentioned that back when we went through the Chronicle. In the entry for the year 1132, the scribe wrote, Was it noch swithe long? Which meant, was it not very long? The word swithe meant very. It had normally been spelled with a thorn or eth at the end. But the Peterborough scribe spelled it S-U-I-T-H-E, and the T-H spelling entered English. Now, I should note that the T-H letter combination was not a brand new innovation. It had actually been around for a long time in Latin. That was because the Romans had borrowed a lot of Greek words with that sound. And the Greeks had a specific letter for the sound called theta. But since Latin didn't have that sound, or a letter for that sound, 
They just used the TH letter combination to represent that sound in those words borrowed from Greek. And now that spelling was applied to English as well. With the use of the TH letter combination, there was no longer a need for those old Anglo-Saxon letters, thorn and eth. So those old letters gradually disappeared. Eth actually disappeared very quickly. It disappeared within about a century, and it was gone by the late 1200s. Thorn hung around a bit longer, but it was ultimately a victim of the printing press, which was invented near the end of the Middle English period. Most of those new presses were constructed on the continent, and they used continental letters, and they didn't have a thorn, so that forced the use of the TH letter combination, and the thorn finally disappeared from English. Now, you might remember from an earlier episode that the printers did try to come up with a way to print the thorn in English documents. Since they didn't have a specific thorn letter, they sometimes used the letter Y because the shape of the Y resembled a thorn. And that technique gave us the spelling of Y-E for the, as in ye old tea shop. But the first word was always pronounced the, not ye. The letter Y was just used as a substitute for the thorn. Eventually, that practice stopped because of the confusion it created, and the TH letter combination became the standard spelling for the TH sounds in English. So that takes care of two of those old Anglo-Saxon letters, thorn and eth. What about the other two, called ash and win? Well, the letter ash was actually a letter for a vowel sound. It represented the a sound in a word like hat or bat. Since it was a vowel letter, I'll deal with it in the next episode. So that leaves the final Anglo-Saxon letter called win. This letter represented the W sound. Now again, the Latin alphabet didn't have a specific letter for the W sound when the Anglo-Saxons borrowed the alphabet. The letter W didn't exist at that time, so the Anglo-Saxons turned to the runes and borrowed the runic letter for that sound, called win. The letter actually resembles the letter P, but with a much bigger loop. And that largely solved the problem of how to represent the W sound in Old English in a clear and consistent way. Now again, when the Norman scribes arrived, they didn't like that funny-looking Anglo-Saxon letter. So they got rid of it and imposed a new spelling, which was an early version of our modern letter W. But in order to understand what happened here, we have to consider what the French scribes had to work with, because the W sound was complicated in Latin and French. Earlier, I said that the Latin alphabet didn't have a specific letter for the W sound, but that sound did exist in early Latin. So how did they spell it? Well, they used the letter U. The U represented both the vowel sound, U, and this W sound. And in fact, those two sounds are so closely related that linguists actually classify the W sound as a semivowel. When the vowel sound, U, appears before another vowel, it tends to shift to the W sound. A good example of this is the name Louis in French. The spelling L-O-U-I-S is its original spelling, and it reflects the original pronunciation. But notice that we tend to pronounce it as Louis, or Louis in French. That W sound is a natural development. 
and in fact, the spelling of the name was later anglicized to L-E-W-I-S. The important point here is that the Romans and the French tended to use the letter U for the W sound because the W sound was seen as a variation of the U sound. And there really wasn't much confusion because context made it clear. When the letter U appeared before a consonant, it was usually pronounced as a vowel, U. But when the letter U appeared before another vowel, like in Louis, it was usually pronounced with that W sound. So the French-trained scribes tended to use the letter U for this W sound. But they also had another technique that was really a variation of the U. As I noted, when a U appeared before another vowel, it typically had that W sound, W. I've given the example of Louis, but another good example is the word equus, which is a term for a class of animals, including horses and zebras. It's spelled E-Q-U-U-S, but the first U is often pronounced as a W or W sound, so it's equus. Well, this idea of putting two U's together in this manner became popular in late Latin and early French. If you really wanted to make it clear that the sound you were writing was a W sound and not an U sound, then you could just write two U's back to back. So French-trained scribes used both techniques, a single U before another vowel, or back-to-back U's if they really wanted to make it clear. And after the Normans conquered England, these two techniques replaced the Old English letter for the W sound called WIN. In fact, this happened very quickly. In an earlier episode, we saw that the Peterborough scribe was already using back-to-back U's in place of the win in the mid-1100s. These back-to-back U's became so popular that they were soon compressed into a single letter, known as the double U. This was already starting to happen in the 1100s and 1200s. And once those two U's were physically attached to each other, that actually created a brand new letter for the W sound. And this process also gave us the name of the letter, the W. So the Old English letters Thorn and Eth were replaced with a new TH letter combination, and the Old English letter Win was replaced with a U or UU letter combination, which soon evolved into our modern letter W. Now, I mentioned that the letters U and W are closely related. The sounds they represent are related, and in fact, the letter W evolved out of the letter U, as I just described. But there's another letter that's closely related to U and W, and you can probably guess which one it is. It's the one that comes in between those two letters in the modern alphabet. Of course, it's the letter V. And the letter V is important to this part of the story. Both Old English and Old French had the V sound, V. But each language had a different letter for that sound. And neither of them had the letter V, because the V didn't exist yet as a distinct letter. So let's explore this development. The V sound didn't exist in classical Latin, and that's why there was no specific letter for that sound in the Latin alphabet. But that sound started to appear in the language during the late Latin period, as the original language fractured into the Romance languages, including French. The sound appeared when the Latin W sound shifted to a V sound in many words. So that had two important consequences for early French. 
It meant that Old French had a relatively new V sound, but it didn't have a specific letter for that sound. Since it was considered a variation of the W sound, which itself was a variation of the U sound, the scribes just used the letter U for all of those sounds, because that's really all they had to work with. Now, over time, they invented ways to vary the letter U to distinguish those three sounds. As I just noted, they used the back-to-back U's for the W sound, and that eventually evolved into our modern letter W. And to distinguish the V sound from the U sound, they just used two different versions of the letter U. The letter was sometimes written with one long curvy line, and it was sometimes written with two separate straight lines. And over the next few centuries, the curvy version was allocated to the vowel sound of U, and the V-shaped version was allocated to the V sound. And once that distinction became widely accepted and was consistently used, that meant that the V-shaped version became its own distinct letter, with its own sound. This process wasn't completed until the end of the Middle English period, around the 1500s. And the two shapes really became distinct in the hands of the printers and their new printing presses. But until then, throughout the Middle English period, the U and V were considered the same letter. It could be written two different ways, and it could represent two different sounds. In fact, it could really represent three different sounds, because the letter was still sometimes used for that W sound. So this UV letter was doing a lot of work in Middle English. And this confusion didn't get completely sorted out until the V and the W were finally accepted as distinct letters a few centuries later. So all of that meant that Old French had a V sound represented by letter U, which was sometimes written in a way that resembled modern letter V. So it was really an early version of the modern letter V. And just to keep this discussion as simple as possible, I'll refer to this letter as V going forward. But keep in mind that it wasn't really considered to be a separate letter yet. So after the Norman Conquest, the French scribes encountered the English language, which also had a V sound, but that sound was far less prominent in English. In English, the sound was represented with the letter F, because it was considered to be a variation of the F sound. Now this may seem odd at first glance, but we've actually come across this issue in earlier episodes. We've seen how the F sound switched to a V sound in certain words in Old English, and we still do that today. So we have one leaf, but two leaves, and one thief, but two thieves. We explored this sound change before, so I won't go back through it here, but you may remember that the F sound and the V sound are closely related sounds. The only difference is that the F sound is voiceless and the V sound is voiced. And that sound became voiced in certain situations, like plural words. So in those cases, it switched from an F sound to a V sound. And that's why the Anglo-Saxons just thought of the V sound as a variation of the F sound, and they spelled it with the letter F. Well, the French scribes didn't like that spelling. It looked weird and foreign to them. So they got rid of the F in situations where it represented the V sound, and they replaced it with their own letter, their early version of the letter V. So when we spell words today with a V, that's ultimately an innovation brought by the French scribes. 
Had the conquest never happened, we would probably still be spelling those words with an F, just like the Anglo-Saxons did. Now, I should note that Orm still used the traditional Anglo-Saxon F in the Ormulum. He hadn't yet adopted the letter V. And we see that in his spelling of the word verse. Verse is a Latin word, and it was used in the church. So it had actually been used during the Old English period. Orm used it in the Ormulum, but he spelled it F-E-R-R-S. So the French V hadn't arrived yet. I should also mention one other thing about the V sound in Old English. As I noted, it wasn't very common in Old English. It only occurred in words where it was surrounded by voiced sounds. So, for example, it tended to pop up when words ending in F were made plural. So, again, leaf and leaves, and thief and thieves. For this reason, it almost never appeared at the front of native Old English words. It only appeared at the front of words borrowed from other languages, usually French or Latin. So I just gave the example of verse, which Orm used in the Ormulum. And after the conquest, a lot of French words with that initial V sound started to come into English. Words like very and village, visit, vote, vest, vigil, and so on. They're all borrowed words, and they're all still spelled with that letter V. So that means that virtually all of the words we have in modern English that begin with a V sound are loan words from other languages. There are a few exceptions to this rule, but I'll probably cover those exceptions in future episodes. So we've seen how the unique Anglo-Saxon letters were discarded, and the use of the letter F for the V sound was also discarded in most cases. It still lives on in a few words, like the word of, O-F, but for the most part, the new scribes just used their early version of the letter V. So that's a lot of change, but those French scribes weren't done yet. They also made some more changes. For example, they introduced the letter Z, or Z, to English. In English, the history of the Z sound is very similar to the history of the V sound. They're both the voiced version of another sound. So as we just saw, the V sound is the voiced version of the F sound and the Anglo-Saxons just used the letter F for both sounds. Well, the Z sound is the voiced version of the S sound. And again, the Anglo-Saxons just used the letter S for both sounds. Once again, we see this change at the end of plural words. So, just as leaf becomes leaves with a V sound, house becomes houses with a Z sound. Again, the sound changed to a voiced sound when it was surrounded by other voiced sounds, which often happened when words were made plural. So, letter S represented the Z sound in Old English. But that Z sound was very limited in Old English, and it never really appeared at the front of words. Then along came the Normans, and once again, they didn't like the fact that the Anglo-Saxons spelled the Z sound with the letter S. So they introduced their own letter Z. But as I noted, that Z sound was limited in Old English. And again, it never really occurred at the beginning of words. So almost every word we have in modern English that begins with an initial Z sound came from somewhere else. They're almost all loan words. Words like zeal, zero, zebra, zoo, zone, and zombie. 
They all came in from other languages, and they're spelled with that letter Z rather than the Old English S. So letters V and Z were introduced from French during the Middle English period. But the Middle English scribes were far less consistent and far less diligent in their use of the letter Z. In modern English, the letter V almost always represents the V sound, with a few exceptions, like the word of that I noted earlier. But when it comes to the letter Z, its use is much more hit and miss. The Z was never consistently applied to English words. So that's part of the reason why we still use the letter S for the Z sound in many words today. We see that S at the end of words like tease, bruise, surprise, advertise, and many, many more. So we still let the S do all the work in many words. So we have close with an S sound, but we might close the door with a Z sound. Both words are spelled the same way. And we might live in a house with an S sound, but a school might house its students in a dorm. Again, both words are spelled with an S. It may seem confusing and inconsistent, but when we use the letter S for the Z sound in that way, we're using it in the same way the Anglo-Saxons did. So the French scribes introduced the letter Z, but they were never able to make its use consistent. I should also make a quick note about the name of that letter. I've mentioned this before, but as many of you know, the letter is pronounced Z in the United States and Z in much of the rest of the English-speaking world. The letter actually originated in the Greek alphabet as the letter Zeta. During the Middle English period, it was called Zeta, based on that original Greek name. But it was sometimes shortened to just Zay. So both pronunciations were common in Middle English. And Zeta and Zay ultimately gave us our modern Z and Z. During the early modern English period, Britain and most of its colonies settled on the first pronunciation, Z. Meanwhile, in colonial America, both pronunciations were common. But after the American Revolution, Noah Webster said that the proper pronunciation should be Z. And that really settled the debate in the United States. And it's been Z ever since. So we've looked at the introduction of letters W, V, and Z to Middle English. In those cases, the French-educated scribes had a specific letter for a sound they found in English. And they elected to use their own letter rather than the letter used by the Anglo-Saxons. But there were several situations where the French scribes didn't have a specific letter to use. They had to come up with another way to represent that sound. And that usually meant that they had to combine two or more letters. We've already seen that with the TH letter combination. The French scribes didn't like the Old English letters thorn and eth, so they just replaced those letters with a combination of T and H. Well, they did the same thing in other situations as well. And that produced some other letter combinations that we still use today, like CH and SH and GH. So let's look at those developments. I've explored the origin of the CH letter combination before, way back in episode 5 about the history of the letter C. But let me do a quick recap. As you probably know by now, the letter C was used for the K sound in Latin. And that's how Old English used it as well. 
But during the early Middle Ages, that K sound shifted forward to new sounds before the front vowels, E and I. And in many cases, it also shifted at the end of a word. And that happened in both Old English and Early French. But the new sound was different in each language. In Old English, the K sound shifted forward to become a CH sound, CH. So the word kirk started to be pronounced as church, and that gave us the modern word church. But in French, the K sound shifted forward and became an S sound. So the Latin word kirkus meant a ring. And in early French, that initial C before the I shifted forward to an S sound. And kirkus became circus, as in a three-ring circus. And the related word kirkulus became circle. So yes, circus and circle are cognate. And they both reflect this basic sound change within French. Now even though the sound of letter C changed in both Old English and French, neither set of scribes felt the need to change the spelling of words to reflect those sound changes. And that's because context made the pronunciation clear. When a C appeared before a back vowel, A, O, or U, then it had its traditional pronunciation as the K sound in both languages. So, cat, cot, cut. But when it appeared before a front vowel, E or I, it had the new sound. In Old English, it was CH, and in French, it was S. And as long as English and French were separate and distinct languages, there was no problem. The pronunciation was clear in each language. But after the Norman Conquest, French words started to pour into English. So the scribes couldn't rely on context anymore. Before the front vowels, the sound could now either be CH or S. It all depended on whether the word came from Old English or French. So the French scribes had to pick one pronunciation as the new standard. Naturally, being French-trained, and many of them being French-speaking, they decided that the French rule was correct. So a C was retained for the S sound before an E or an I. That was the French rule, and that's still the general rule in English today. So circus, circle, cellar, cemetery, and so on. And that means that we let context tell us the proper pronunciation, just like the French did. But that means that the scribes had to figure out a way to represent that Anglo-Saxon ch sound in the same situation. And of course, there was no specific letter for the ch sound, so they decided to represent it with a ch letter combination. And the spelling of the word church went from c-i-r-c-e to C-H-U-R-C-H. The new C-H is actually on display in the Ormulum. In Old English, the word child was spelled C-I-L-D, but Orm spelled it C-H-I-L-D, just like we do today. And the word bench had traditionally been spelled B-E-N-C, but Orm spells it B-E-N-N-C-H-E. So those examples confirm that the new CH spelling was underway in the late 1100s. Now, as I've noted before, some Old English words actually retain the K sound before an E and an I. That included words like king and kindred. There were other sound changes at work here that were causing that K sound to be retained. 
But that created a problem for the Norman scribes who needed to distinguish that lingering k sound before an e and an i. As it turned out, the Latin alphabet had a letter k that wasn't really being used very much. So the letter k was introduced to represent that lingering k sound before the e and the i. So words like king and kindred got their modern letter k during this period. And again, Orm gives us some of these brand new spellings in the Ormulum. He spells the word kind as K-I-N-D-E instead of the older spelling C-Y-N-D. And in earlier episodes, we saw that the final Peterborough scribes spelled the word king as K-I-N-G rather than the older C-Y-N-G. So all of that meant that English acquired the CH letter combination and an expanded use of the letter K. So we've looked at the origin of TH and CH, but those French-trained scribes also gave us our modern SH. This was another sound that didn't have a specific letter in Latin or French. So the French scribes represented that sound with either SH or SCH. There were also cases where they used a double S for that sound. Anyway, when those scribes looked at English, they saw that Old English didn't use those spellings. The Anglo-Saxon scribes spelled the sh sound with the letter combination sc. And that may seem odd, but we have to remember where the sh sound came from in English. It was the product of another sound change in early Old English. The sk sound, sk, had shifted to this sh sound, sh. And since this change was pretty universal in Old English, the Anglo-Saxons just kept the old spelling, S-C. But then the Vikings arrived, and they reintroduced that original sk sound. And you might remember that that gave us the modern distinction between shirt and skirt. The word shirt is the Old English version with the sh sound, and skirt is the Norse version with the older sk sound. So by the time the French arrived, that SC letter combination was being used for both sets of words. So a document might spell shirt and skirt the same way. So the French scribes tried to fix this problem. And of course they fixed it by introducing the SH letter combination for the SH sound. The older SC letter combination was retained for the SK sound. And we still use that spelling for words like score and scare and scope and scab. And with the increased use of the letter K, there was also a tendency to use SK in addition to SC. And as a very general rule, Norse words that had the SK sound tended to be spelled with an SK, and French words with that SK sound tended to be spelled with an SC. But there were lots of exceptions to that rule. So again, just to summarize, the SC letter combination was used in Old English, but the SH spelling was introduced in Early Middle English. In fact, the SH spelling was being adopted around the time that Orm wrote the Ormulum, because that text is the first known document to spell English words with an SH. Take the word shall. In Old English, it was spelled S-C-E-A-L, But Orm uses the modern spelling, S-H-A-L-L. 
and Orme is the first known English writer to spell the Old English word shame with an SH. And the best example is probably the word English itself. It was traditionally spelled E-N-G-L-I-S-C, but Orme replaced the S-C at the end with an S-H. Now, just to be clear, Orme didn't invent this spelling. It had already existed in French, but the Ormulum is the oldest English document to use it. Now, so far, we've seen that the French scribes introduced several new letter combinations to represent sounds which didn't have a specific letter in French. So we got TH for the TH and TH sounds. We got CH for the CH sound. And we got SH for the SH sound. So you've probably noticed a trend there. The French-educated scribes tended to add the letter H to an existing letter to create these new spellings. This was an old practice going back to the Romans. Ultimately, the H sound is just a breathy sound that exists before or after another sound. And the Romans inherited a lot of words from Greek that had a very aspirated or breathy consonant sound. And to represent those sounds, they just put an H after the consonant. So, for example, Greek had a very aspirated P sound that sometimes sounded like a combination between a P and an F. And the Romans represented that sound by adding an H after the letter P. And that gave us our modern P-H spelling for the F sound. That spelling was used for those Greek words that had that sound, and after the Norman Conquest, some of those Greek words passed into English, so the P-H spelling also passed into English during the Middle English period. Similarly, the Greeks had an aspirated K sound, sort of like H. So the Romans represented that sound by adding an H after the letter C. And that produced the original version of the C-H spelling. But in Latin, those words were usually just pronounced with a normal K sound. And those words also passed into English. That's why we have lots of words that begin with a C-H spelling, but are pronounced with a K sound, like choir and chorus and chemistry and chaos. Again, those are all Greek words with a C-H spelling, to represent what was once a breathy K sound at the front. The point is that Latin scribes adopted this extra H as a standard way to spell a new sound that didn't exist in the traditional Latin alphabet. So that's why we have PH and TH and CH and SH. This became such a common practice that it was probably the cause of another spelling change in early Middle English. And that change produced our modern WH spelling at the beginning of words like white and what and when and why. In Old English, all of those words were pronounced with a slight breathy H sound before the W. And so those words were spelled with an initial HW in Old English. So white was H-W-I-T, pronounced more like wheat. And what was H-W-A-T, usually spelled with that letter ash in the middle, so it was actually H-W-ash-T, pronounced hwat. So there was a little aspiration at the front of those words, 
And by the way, some modern English dialects still retain that initial aspiration in those words. But apparently that pronunciation seemed odd to the new French-speaking scribes. Or perhaps they barely even noticed that initial H sound. Or maybe they just didn't like that spelling. It isn't entirely clear what the exact motivation was, but around this time, those scribes started to switch those first two letters at the front of those words, from HW to WH. Again, some scholars think that the scribes were so accustomed to putting the H after the other consonant to represent a unique sound, like PH and TH and SH, that they decided to do the same thing here, and our modern WH was born. And it was apparently born around the current point in our story because Orm is the first known English writer to use that spelling. The word whose was Hwas in Old English, spelled H-W-A-S-S. But Orm spelled it W-H-A-S. So whose got its W-H for the first time. And the word who was Hwa in Old English, spelled H-W-A. But Orm spelled it W-H-A. And this is the first known instance of the word who being spelled with its modern W-H at the beginning. Now, I should note that the H sound didn't just appear before the W sound in Old English. The Anglo-Saxons actually had a tendency to pronounce words with a slight aspiration before the consonant. So, words like loud and lord and lady were also once pronounced with a slight breath before the L. Loud was hlud, H-L-U-D, and lord was hlavard, H-L-A, F-O-R-D. And lady was hlafty, again spelled with an initial H-L. But the French-trained scribes apparently thought that it was strange to pronounce words with an initial breathy sound, or perhaps, again, they barely even noticed it. Either way, they dropped that initial H in those words. And Orm is actually the first known English scribe to drop the H in the word lady. He just spelled it with an initial L at the front. The same thing happened with certain words that began with an R sound. They were often pronounced with a slight breathy sound before the initial R. So a word like ring was hring in Old English, spelled H-R-I-N-G. And roof was hruf, H-R-U-F. Again, the French scribes dropped that initial H from those words as well. So we've covered most of the major spelling changes related to consonants during this period. But there's one more letter that I need to address, and that's the letter G. Back when we looked at the original Old English alphabet, we saw that the Anglo-Saxons used the letter G, but it represented several different sounds at the time. It could be used like we use it today for the hard G sound, G, and in other situations it could be used for the H sound. Now, when the Anglo-Saxons borrowed that letter G from the Latin alphabet, they actually used a different form of the letter preferred by the Irish scribes. It was much more elaborate than the traditional Roman version of the letter. It resembled a lowercase g, but the loop wasn't closed at the top. Well, when the Norman scribes arrived in England, they didn't like the shape of that letter g, so they introduced the more traditional g shape that we have today. But they didn't completely get rid of that old G. 
they kept it around to represent that H sound. That was one of the ways the letter was used in Old English, so they just preserved that use. But some scribes apparently didn't like that spelling, maybe because the funny shape of the letter made it look like a foreign letter. So those scribes elected to use the letter combination GH for the H sound. Again, this was yet another letter combination using that letter H. The Normans thought of that H sound as a breathy G sound, so it made sense to spell it with a GH. And as we saw in an earlier episode, a word like night was pronounced knicht, and it was spelled with a GH to represent that H sound. And when that sound eventually disappeared near the end of the Middle English period, the GH in most of those words became silent. But again, throughout the Middle English period, the GH spelling competed with the old fancy-shaped G. Most scribes preferred one or the other. That fancy-shaped G started to become simplified a bit. It started to resemble the number 3 in its shape. And it soon acquired its own name, called Yog. So at some point, this fancy-shaped G evolved into an altogether new letter distinct from the original letter G. And as I noted, it was used for the H sound, but it was also used in another situation, for the Y sound. And this requires a little bit of an explanation. Remember that this Yog letter was originally letter G in Old English. And as we've seen before, the G sound shifted to a Y sound in many words in Old English. That gave us the difference between gold and yoke, and garden and yard. But even though the sound changed, the spelling stayed the same with the letter G. So letter G came to represent this new Y sound in English. But then the Normans arrived, and they discovered that the letter G was being used for the Y sound in those words. They may not have liked it, but they didn't really have a better option because the modern letter Y wasn't in place yet. So initially, they just decided to keep that fancy-shaped G called Yog for the Y sound. In order to better understand that decision, we need to consider what was happening in French at the time. And this is where things start to get a bit complicated. The old Latin I sound had undergone a lot of changes, and it actually produced two new consonant sounds. One of those sounds was the Y sound, and the other was the J sound. Now, this seems complicated, but we've seen these changes before. Do you remember the evolution of words like Julius and Jupiter? In Latin, they were spelled with an I at the beginning, and they were initially pronounced Iulius and Jupiter. But then that initial I sound became a Y sound and they were pronounced as Julius and Jupiter. And then, in late Latin and early French, the sound shifted again to a J sound, and the pronunciation became Julius and Jupiter. So from eu to you to ju. And if you can follow that change, you can start to understand how the modern letters I, Y, and J are connected. They all came out of the original letter I. Now, I don't have time to outline the complete history here, but the Y emerged as a distinct letter first. It was originally the Greek version of I, and it came to be used for the Y sound, Y. 
and the letter J emerged later as a fancy version of the letter I with a curvy tail on the bottom. And it came to represent this J sound. But those developments take place much later in our story. So in early modern English, the letter I was still doing most of the work for all of those sounds, and it was very confusing. So all of this helps to explain why the French scribes didn't try to change the spelling of the Y sound in English. Since the letter Y wasn't really established yet, they just kept the fancy G of Old English. And in early Middle English, that letter, called Yog, was used for the Y sound. So for the most part, the French scribes used that letter the same way the Anglo-Saxons did. It could represent either the H sound or the Y sound. Now, I should note that the letter Y was finally adopted as a distinct letter a couple of centuries later in the 1300s. And at that point, the Y started to take over. As the letter Y became more popular, the fancy G, or Yog, died out. The final nail in Yog's coffin came with the advent of the printing press. Most European printers didn't have a Yog in their printing kit. So the letter Y became the standard way to spell that sound. So we've covered the Y sound. But what about that J sound? Well, the French scribes also had to deal with that sound in English. But before I go through these developments, let me make an important note. The J sound, J, was very rare in English. And it was non-existent in Latin. And that's interesting, because today... Both languages have lots of words with that sound. And I should note that the modern French J sound, je, as in a name like Jacques, is a later development, but it evolved out of that initial J sound that we still have in English. Anyway, that J sound, or je sound, is all over the place in both modern French and modern English. And the reason for the growth and expansion of that sound is twofold. First, Late Latin acquired this j sound thanks to two completely unrelated sound changes involving two completely different letters. I've already mentioned the first one, from Iulius to Julius to Julius. That j sound evolved out of the letter I, and that produced words like Julius and Jupiter and judge and jury. Meanwhile, the letter G also experienced the same sound change, And in the case of the letter G, it changed before the front vowels, E and I. In those situations, the hard G sound, G, slid forward in the mouth and became a soft G, or J sound. And that produced words like general and gender and gentle and germ. And of course, that's the same sound we just saw in words like Julius and judge and jury. So French got this J sound from two completely different sound changes. And that meant that French scribes had two different ways to represent that sound. They could either use letter I or letter G, the so-called soft G. Eventually, that letter I acquired a little curvy tail at the bottom in the hands of some scribes. And in later centuries, scribes started to use that fancy I with the tail to distinguish that J sound in Julius from the typical vowel sound of I. And that fancy I with the curvy tail became our modern letter J. But at the current point in our story, that hadn't happened yet. 
So the French scribes were still using letter I in some words and letter G in other words for that J sound. And after the Norman conquest, they encountered a handful of English words with that same J sound. But as I noted earlier, that sound was rare in English. It was sometimes found at the end of words, words like hedge, ledge, bridge, and ridge. That J sound was spelled with a CG in Old English, and the French scribes apparently decided that that sound needed to retain a unique spelling. So they replaced the old CG with a brand new DGE, and that gave us the modern spelling of those words I just mentioned hedge, ledge, bridge, and ridge. They all end in DGE today. So as a result of all of that, English acquired three different ways to represent the J sound. First, there was letter I, soon to become letter J. Secondly, there was the letter G, also known as soft G. And third, there was the letter combination DGE at the end of a word or syllable. And a word like judge actually combines two of those spellings, J at the front and DGE at the end. One other quick note about Old English words with the J sound. As I noted, Old English didn't really have that sound at the beginning of words. So when we find a modern English word that begins with a J sound or J sound, we're usually looking at a word borrowed from another language. So this is the same thing that we saw earlier with words in English that begin with a V sound or begin with a Z sound. They're all usually loan words borrowed from other languages. So by now, you can probably start to see why modern English spelling is so complicated. But despite the inconsistencies, there are some basic underlying rules. And in fact, if the French scribes had applied their new letters in a consistent manner, and if loan words had been altered to fit these rules as they came in, then English spelling would make a lot more sense today. But alas, that didn't happen. Exceptions were made. New words came in with their own unique spellings, and sounds continued to change. And later scribes and printers made up new rules and decided on altogether new spellings. So English spelling was never really settled during this period. And it didn't start to become settled until dictionaries started to be produced in the 1700s and 1800s. For now, scribes relied upon some of the general rules I outlined in this episode, and they tended to spell words phonetically as they sounded. Most dialects used the same basic consonants, so the pronunciation and spelling of the consonants was a bit more stable. But the vowels were a completely different story. Vowel sounds were undergoing a lot of changes, and that produced a variety of regional accents. This was apparently such a problem during the late 1100s that our friendly scribe Orm invented his own system to represent the vowel sounds in his words. And that system is extremely important to scholars because it shows exactly how the vowels were changing, at least in the East Midlands. So next time, we'll turn our attention to those vowels, and we'll look at Orm's reforms. Until then, thanks for listening to the History of English podcast. Podcast.